You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. Hi, I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, hopefully, everyone's doing well. I've been on the road. I just got home today, and I'm amped up for deer hunting season. I think uh, some of us are already out there hunting. I know some people on the podcast that participate have already killed deer, so congratulations to them. Hopefully, we get them on and hear more about their stories. And... Uh, I was visiting a client today, and I just had a nice time. It's it's getting to the time of year where it's great to scout. I love doing client visits in September. Best time to do client visits, bar none, no question about it. You can make immediate changes and give recommendations on the spot. So one of my favorite guests back is back, Perry Batten from Drury Outdoors, and we're going to talk to him a, a little bit about farm development and intrusion today. Perry, hey, are you on the line? Yes, sir. How you doing? Good, man. It's happy to have you back. It's been a little bit for us, so it's good to reconnect. I called you Rain Man the other day because you were, uh, well, maybe you called yourself <laughs> Rain Man. I think I called you Sprinkler, man. What have you been doing yeah. on the field, man? What's been going on? Yeah, the Midwest is is no different than we talked about about the same time last year. I mean, we're, we went 30-plus days with no rain, and, and we're still there. We just got a little sprinkle today, which knocked the dust off the roads, and that's about it, but I put the last two weeks, I put 131,000 gallons of water down on, uh, on about nine different food plots to, to grow them and save them from this drought. So, so that we have something green to hunt over, uh, come October 1st here in Iowa. But the last two weeks, that's, that's what the story has been. So that's a tough season to walk into when you're struggling like that. But, you know, hopefully at least the gallons that you put out there were worth the time. How are you, how are you getting that out across the crop field without creating too much damage? What, what are you, how are you uh, spraying that? Are you using a sprinkler system or what, what are you doing? Uh, we have a 18 foot trailer hooked to our tractor. And then we have a 1600 gallon uh, water tank with a two inch trash pump on the back. And that allows us the valve system that's set up allows us to suck water out of ponds or lakes. And then we haul that water to the plot uh, that needs it. And I try to stay on the perimeters of the plot and shoot the water into it. I kind of have a, like a, it's kind of like a fire hose uh, nozzle set up and then a two by four that's, that's uh, screwed to the trailer to, 
kind of arc the water up and, and get a good distance. I can probably shoot water about 20, 30 yards. So typically I can water the per, from the perimeters of every plot and, and get, you know, 85% of that plot watered. But that's kind of just a quick rundown of how we're doing it. Um, you know, I think if you're somebody that's looking to do it and kind of afraid, uh, I think look at some of your rental rental places. I, I, I got some friends and some buddies that have rented 500 gallon tanks. You got to make a few more trips, but it's, uh, it is doable. Uh, if, if you've got a big deer and you, you absolutely have to have a food plot one year, I think, you know, you, somebody could, could put enough water down to grow one. Yeah. That's a good, good thing for folks that are dealing with that particular issue and problem solving on the spot there. All right. So I want to get into, you know, the concept of building a farm from scratch and you've had many instances of this and probably some this year and we want to talk about your process and where do you start you know maybe you have some history on the the property from just leasing it but you're actually have the opportunity to enhance it and i want to kind of go down that road and and maybe understand a little bit more on how you attack a farm from scratch yeah for sure i think the you know, hopefully you have some sort of history if you buy the farm, you know, whether it's just an open listing, you know, hopefully the previous owner was some sort of hunter and had trail cam pictures and some sort of idea of where the deer spent the most time. But I think, I think it all boils down to three things really you identify right off the bat. And that's, you know, food, water, and what the deer numbers look like. And also you know, a fourth big one that's kind of probably something you think about after you buy the farm, but maybe prior, you know, I think we think about this a lot more is, is access, how you're going to get to the spots on that farm to hunt them, you know, because if, if a, a farm could look amazing, but if you don't have access to get to where you need to hunt it, it, you know, it, it dwindles that amazing name very quickly. So I think once you identify those key things of the farm, uh, especially your deer population. Cause you know, whether we're, you know, there's pockets of deer populations here in Iowa that are just insane. And then there's some that are pretty, pretty balanced. And then you get to Missouri and it's kind of the same. It's very pockety and to decide, you know, how much food do you need to be successful? So, you know, you dive in to the deer population overall you know, and it's not bucks to does really. It's just numbers game because if you're going to be successful on that farm, you have to have some sort of attraction to get the deer in front of you to be able to harvest them. And that could be water. You know, you could be the only water in the next, you know, however big that block is. But a lot of it for us is identifying how much food we need on the farm and how much food the farm allows us to grow, meaning is there a ridge top? Is there something flat we can plant on? Is there a nice bottom field? You know, cause if it's not suitable to plant a food plot on, we're not, we're not going to do it. We're, we, we hate erosion. So, uh, it's something we deal with here in the Midwest. Um, but once you identify those things, it's, it's, uh, then boiling down to, okay, we need, you know, let, let's just call it a 80 acre parcel of, of a, of, uh, an 80 acre farm. Let's boil it down to our deer. Our deer numbers are medium to high, you know, overall population of deer. And we have good access, you know, 
I'm just thinking about my own farm that I have down in Missouri where the deer numbers are medium to high. It's 80 acres. And I've got, I've got three and a half acres of strictly food plots on that farm and it does quite well. So, you know, once you get to there, then you start saying, okay, there's a tree for a tree stand. There's a spot that I can access very easy to get in a blind or, or whatever your hunting setup may be. Yeah. I want to kind of add to that topic, Perry. And I think one of the things that I think people struggle with, and this is just, just a metric, right? We look at the deer population and, you know, we're just kind of using, we're, we're genericizing, right? High, medium, low. So I don't consider us necessarily on the low end, but comparatively we are low in our area. We also have seasonality differences between, you know, New York state and, and Iowa, Missouri. And the other piece of that is, you know, kind of diagnosing on average your deer herd size and there's metrics that are put out there. One of the metrics you can use is the deer take numbers, you know, per your particular area, per your town, per your county, etc. And then think about, you know, what the population is based on that. Usually the, they do a threshold. They take, you know, approximately a third of the deer. Sometimes it's half, sometimes it's a quarter. Your local or DNR will have some of that information for you, you know, through their metrics saying kind of what is the average deer take. And in concert with the numbers that are being recorded, sometimes you can use that as a kind of a metric to figure out, you know, generally, you know, what your deer population is. However, on the side of that is when you're thinking about, you know, your microcosm or your individualistic situation, you know, these small parcels that abut each other and doing count, kicking count. I've seen many different studies where people have used and quality deer management had some studies out there, some methodologies. You know, and a lot of that involves baiting, et cetera. But I've seen thermal work. I've seen just, just number counts. I've seen drives where they're pushing deer out of areas at certain intervals of time just to kind of get a numbers game. And then if you're taking the deer numbers, you're kind of doing an aggregation, you know, of those numbers. And you're assuming, you know, maybe there's on average, they eat about 2,200 pounds of, of uh, dry matter a year. That's dry matter, not wet matter. And there's a big difference between dry and wet matter. So you, you can use that as a metric, kind of as a baseline to figure out, you know, how much food generally you want on your, your property based on the frequency of use. It's not an exact science to it, but you can kind of come up with some metrics. But, you know, we may be talking deer numbers in the 30 deer per square, square mile up to maybe 150 deer per square mile or even more than that matter. So it's kind of relative to your area and it's thinking kind of globally about what the other neighbors are providing and comparatively what you can provide to at least compete with them. So that's my two cents into that, Barry. All right, keep going. Keep going down your uh, your road. No, I, I think you bring up, bring up a very great point, especially about what you just said at the end there about what your neighbors are doing and what you are doing, you know, and in your landscape, you know, I, I'm not very familiar up there, but just from the conversations we've had, you know, if you have a client that has a property that allows you to put a, you know, let's just call it half acre food plot and the whole neighborhood has nothing else, you know, that neighbor or that client of yours, or whether it be your own farm, you're going to, you're going to be very successful. Um, you know, in our neck of the woods, there's crops everywhere. And for the most part, there's a lot of, uh, farms that are food plotted, a lot of farms that are managed for deer. So I think you have to be a little better than the neighbors, you know, and, and have your stuff dialed in completely to be six, as successful as possible. So I want you to, but, 
I want you to bump over really quick, Perry, and kind of start going maybe through, and I didn't mean to cut you off, but kind of go through some some of the layout things that, you know, have kind of worked as of near term on something, you know, you're starting from scratch and you're saying, okay, you know, we're walking into the season and maybe this is, you know, this is preseason work, but you're doing your planning, you're starting to do your layout. What does that kind of look like? What is the process you go through when you're starting to kind of lay out, you kind of laid out the food, water, cover piece of it, differentiating or discriminating other properties from your own. What did you do next? Yeah, I think the, I mean, the best time to buy a farm, in my opinion, is a time where you can walk that farm in the later season, you know, December and later, February, March, be able to put boots on the ground and see where those trails are, where the pressure was at through the season. And it just allows you to identify a lot of things quickly. Um, And so once those are identified, you know, when we're walking that new farm, you know, identifying what might be, you know, very, very, what we, what I like to call hub scrapes, you know, very, a location that's been scraped multiple times by multiple bucks, uh, fence gaps, natural pinches like that, fence gaps or ponds that are located close to food or natural pinches in fields, whether it's going from a big ag fields to a small hay field you know, and there's a tree line that's making a 30 yard pinch. Uh, you know, all those things, once you identify those things, you can then capitalize on what you said, food plot layouts in those areas. You know, let's say you have a giant ag field and then it necks down into 30 yards and then it goes into a hay field, you know, and, and let's, let's just, hopefully those two things are flat with the ag fields probably already going to be flat. Hopefully the hay field is too, you know, and, carve out a half acre on the hayfield side, your blinds in the pinch. If you have a good access, identify the wind you need to hunt it on and hopefully leave a little acre or two of standing grain on the grain side. So you have a very simple pinch point to get deer within bow range and you can provide them two different types of food in that area. Yeah, I like that. I like the options. And I think a lot of people, don't plant options. And in the podcast I just did, I talked a little bit about polycultures and getting away from monocropping and having that diversity in the landscape, you know, diverse diet creates a diverse opportunity and, uh, you know, diversity in their, the, the deer's uh, gut biome is huge for their well-being. All right. So I want to go down this little road here and there's, this is something, a metric that I use in the last podcast, I introduced the concept of natural capital. I kind of phrased it a little bit different, but it, what, it, what it basically means to me is when you build a property and you have a lot of plant life that the deer consume, but they don't consume at all. So you have capital built in and there's residual or um, I forget what the term I used last go around, but you have reserves and those reserves allow you to, you know, basically have a, a, a good cycling of nutrients and those reserves show that you're, you're, uh, you're not hitting a carrying capacity threshold. So the number of animals on the, the landscape is not exceeding the food value that's currently aligned with it. So that's a metric. Now, I'm just throwing this out here as just a general number. And this is like the same concept of when you're kind of haying a hay field. If you cut the hay field right down to the ground, what happens is it stalls out. It takes a long time to recover. And then on the flip side of the equation, 
because it takes a long time to recover, you don't get that natural capital or that gain in your food plot or gain in your hay field. So having the surplus allows for, again, more functionality in these plant synergy kind of scenarios. The reason I bring this up is, you know, when you're designing your hunting property, you're thinking about the food value content, like Perry just talked about in these feed, feed settings, just to give them opportunities. We also got to capitalize, you know, in the woods and thinking about the value of food over time. And I mentioned this in the last podcast is, you know, their gut biome is shifting at this point. They're focused on, you know, the forage changes on the landscape. So they're going to get into some of those natural browse materials, which can, can include de- deciduous leaf matter. So they're going to be eating some of the trees and some of the tree buds, et cetera, as the tree, you know, leaf falls off. And some of those other plants like briars, brambles, things of that nature. So just remember there's value in some of these other you know, elements and structures and consider that you know, when you're kind of assessing quality and volume of food on the landscape. All right, Perry, I just had to add that in because it kind of tied into the podcast I did last time. Um, no, for sure. That's a, that's a great point. I mean, I think in a farm setup, if we're going down that road, you know, we start with our food plots and accesses and kind of the nuts and bolts, if you will. And then as we hone that farm in better, you know, through the years, we'll add some TSI, identify, you know, let's cut some hickories down because they have very, very little wildlife value. And let's leave this nice grove of, you know, whether it's white oaks or pin oaks or shingle oaks, you know, and, and add a lot more, natural browse if you will and acorns and leaf matter so no i think that's a a great topic i just think that's something we do in the later years of owning you know starting a farm to get to where it needs to be yeah so let's take it down maybe another level so we've got our framework we've got our access we've created this kind of we'll say uh specialized features like food plots etc what are the things that are the icing on the cake for you guys when you're doing your layouts? Is it screening? Is it the type of blinds you're setting up? Is it being able to move the blinds in and out, like portability? Like, what are the things that make these systems function so you can have opportunities? Because I know you're hunting out of box blinds, and I think a lot of people are starting to recognize the importance of box blinds. But what are the, some of the other things that kind of kind of come to your mind that, that make these farms function better than they would originally after you start doing those improvements? Certainly, we definitely plant some screening, whether that's uh, through array of different grasses. Uh, this year, we planted some sorghum in a spot as a screen. Uh, there's one field in particular that's a big bottom field that we hunt a lot during late season that's very visible from all the south slopes that the deer like to bet on. Um, and so when we're down there planting our cornfield, we just make a pass or two with the planter and leave the corn stand all year as a screen. Um, pretty simple, easy task. I think the easiest screen we've ever planted was this year's sorghum, you know, just till it up quickly, uh, spread your correct seed rate and you got a, a pretty solid screen. And if you get a good sorghum seed, it, it lasts through, uh, some freezes and thaws. I think we utilize a lot of creeks here in the Midwest, which anyone who's been to the Midwest or really anywhere there's big Creek structure. They're really deep. They could be 10, 12 foot deep walls. Um, we use those a lot for accesses if they're available. You can literally walk past a bed of deer and if the wind's correct, it never knows you're there because you're 10 foot underground essentially. Um, so yes, screening with grasses and natural crops and then your access is being designed and 
you know, just designed to a point where it's over, it's like a science. It's, it's literally down to the spot you drop into the Creek to the spot you climb out of the Creek and you're in a blind. I, I know one access we built last year, you drop into a Creek, you walk about 80 yards and we literally built a ladder that's screwed and connected to tree stumps up the bank of the Creek. And it literally puts you at the platform of the blind and you go right in it. That's so. awesome. That's awesome. Um, all right. So I want to take you, I want to take you like past what we're at now. And I want to go to a farm that's really advanced and it's functioning correctly. And one of the things that you've had maybe a takeaway moment over the past years too, that people can think about here now during hunting season, you know, and make some changes to their property. So take us to a level 400 or 500 level farm that's functioning well. And what's really kind of making that farm kick in and work good. I, th- <clears throat> I think all, you know, let's, let's just go to a 120 acre piece, you know, pretty small acres, but you could have multiple locations, call it three locations. I think you have, in those three locations, you cover almost every wind direction. And you also have dynamite access in those three locations, whether you're utilizing screening to get into the blind, whether you have a Creek access, you're parking on a County road, you're walking down a bridge, you're in a Creek and you're going to the spot and you're right in the spot. As soon as you come out of that Creek, um, every single one of those spots is dynamite access accompanied on that farm is the correct amount of food plots and food left for the deer every year. And then also the correct amount of cover to food, meaning whether that's, you know, grasses or some kind of, some kind of CRP program, or that's hardwood timber that's you, that you have TSI and maintained through, I would call three year process to get that, you know, completely, uh, as brushy as I would want it and grown up as I was, as I would want it to be. And also, you know, going in there every winter and maintaining that TSI and make sure that you have new growth, new woody brows, and that, you know, the trees that I like to see perform here in the Midwest would be your oaks and your walnuts. Everything else is kind of low on the total pole from my, my perspective and view, but that's kind of a short, you know, your every single one of your spots has good access. You never question when you go in is, am I going to spook deer or not? Your wind directions are covered for you a lot for allowing you to hunt multiple wind locations and also your food to herd ratio is correct. And your timber is whether, well, it doesn't just have to be timber, your cover for your deer, whether that's like I said, grasses or timber is top notch. Yeah, I think there's all all good and everything I agree with. All right, so we're going to go a different direction now. Now we're going to, you know, the rules of engagement when it comes to intrusion. And this could be intrusion in that respect of you're getting trail camera data, you're hunting a, a stand location. You know, what are good rules of intrusion and what are bad rules of intrusion? And we, I think people want to hear more about, you know, when you guys are trying to collect data or learn about your deer or make some decisions to move stands. How do you approach intrusion? Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny you brought this topic up because I was, uh, yesterday I had chatted with Mark about what I was doing tomorrow. And, uh, this was on the topic because 
you know, our Missouri season has started already. We have October 1st coming for Iowa start. And so we're, we're starting that very, very fine line when we go on the farms and when we do not. And so tomorrow I have to go put uh, scrape trees on all of our Western farms in Iowa. And we discussed by farm a list of, <clears throat> excuse me, a list of where we, where I'm going to go put scrape trees and where I am not going to go uh, due to the wind direction. So we literally went through uh, what the wind's doing throughout the day and kind of pre-planned my route to where I will work the entire day through that route determined by the wind direction. <laughs> that that sounds about right for you guys. And uh, that, that's, uh, that's not surprising because the reality of it is, you know, you're going for those top end, top notch deer and one little mistake at this point could, could change the game for you. All right, let's, uh, let's go to another rule that maybe you have, or you and Mark have, or, you know, something that you guys kind of play into when it comes to taking trail camera data, because I think a lot of people make a lot of mistakes and they take, and they, you know, they may not have cell cameras, you know, maybe their reception's bad or maybe they can afford a cell camera and they, they have a regular camera at this point. You know, what are some of the rules of thumb when it goes to kind of getting that data? What, what do you typically, how do you approach that? Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of that is determined by wind direction too. I mean, we might wait if, if we think we can wait, you know, we may wait four or five days to get the right wind direction to even go in and check a regular trail camera, which we also have a lot of, we have, uh, multiples of, of both regular and cells. Um, and I think the biggest thing is like here in the Midwest where agriculture is so large and deer grow up seeing tractors, smelling tractors, they grow up smelling and seeing, you know, cars and trucks too. So it's not the worst thing. Uh, we have taken a John Deere tractor, any tractor for that matter. And, you know, we need to go check a camera with the wind is dead wrong. Drive that tractor as close to that camera as you can get out, get the camera and get right back in and drive out your chances of being successful are, I'm going to call it 90% better than if you're just riding an e-bike in there or walking in there or riding a four wheeler, you know, your wind's blowing everywhere, but that tractor for some reason, and I, I just think it's general because of they grow up seeing them, smelling them uh, on the daily, almost in this, in this country that we're in, in the Midwest here. I just think it's a very, very non-threatening to them. Very interesting. So let's go one other step. So where have you and Mark had battles on intrusion? Because he sounds like he's a little anal about things. So I'm kind of interested to see what your perspective is and what you disagree with or what you agree with that might be, you know, something that you've had to learn over the past several years working on the jury farms. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've certainly, myself and Wade, have certainly gotten a, a talking to, if you will, about how we went and, you know, maybe it was put a scrape tree up or check the blind or mowed an access or we needed a path to get to a blind or whatever it may be. You know, we did some kind of work task on the farm and we tell Mark, Hey, we got this done. And he looks at his phone or looks at DeerCast, and, uh, the wind is about 180 out of where he would want it to be. We definitely, <laughs> we definitely get an earful on those situations. And I, I don't blame him. He's a, 
he's a perfectionist when it comes to that type of stuff. And I've learned that through the years and I've gotten much better and a little more, um, cautious to that. You know, I've gotten to the point where I, I try and remember to check the wind direction and think about where my wind's going. If I'm doing a work task and it's, you know, like we are now close to season or even during the season. Pretty interesting. Um, is there anything that you think, you know, surprised you over the years or something you've learned in the intrusion game with, with Mark and maybe this is getting into a tree stand and the quietness of it, the approach, the tactics, anything relates to an intrusion as a, as it relates to hunting side of things, it might be interesting for the listeners. Yeah. I think the intrusion fact and the, and the access aspect of it, um, like something I did and, and messed up right off the get go. And, you know, I was mowing farms and I would always like, I always thought in my head, like, Oh, we're going to access this blind from, you know, this County road or this farm pole. And I would always, just get in the tractor with the brush hog and mow the access. And <laughs> I learned quickly that that was something that was very wrong because then you're now encouraging the deer to walk that mowed path, which is your access. So your scent is going to be there. And now there's no, you know, there's no brush there. There's no grass. There's no, you know, so the deer are now going to be more active in walking that. And it was just a, uh, a bad move on my part, and I, I learned quick and quickly, and I, I don't do that anymore. So I think a lot of people do make that mistake. But what what would you do alternatively now in those examples in in comparison? I think a lot of times, you know, in those, you know, if you've got like really brushy area or you're walking through timber and you want to be quiet, you know, I think, uh, you know, a couple weeks ago you could have gone in and we use a weed eater a lot. And just a simple man-sized path with a weed eater to get to those spots or to clear the leaves off the ground or a leaf blower, you know, through the through the years to get that path, you know, very small, very easy for you to access, but very less likely for the deer to go, you know, walk down a nice brush hog path. You know, a simple weed-eated path to get you in instead of the deer in, uh, we do that a lot. Okay. Yeah, I think a lot of people would be, you know, interested to hear maybe, you know, those type of strategies. I think the other piece even for me is, you know, today I was working with a client and talking to him a little bit about his access path to these particular areas. So we're we're daisy chaining food plots together and creating just connectivity across the property. And I talked to him a little bit about how I create screening and I do it kind of functionally in stages where, you know, I may use various types of plants at various heights, et cetera. You know, the access piece of that's critical because the deer are going to follow down those trail systems. And I said, well, a lot of times I'll take and I'll create fencing throughout that trail system. So you open a gate door, you know, walk through the door and then you're at the next gate, open the gate door. And it kind of breaks down maybe some of these access portals by having, you know, maybe snow fence across, et cetera. So that's worked well for me over the years. I do that on my personal property. And, uh, you know, if you're going to limit their access at some point, Sometimes you'll need some physical structure to do that. And to your point, you know, Perry, if you're going to make these, you know, open trails available, um, they're likely going to utilize them. So recognize that sometimes you got to give them some opportunities, but maybe that may maybe put your blind or your tree stand in a different location. So you don't have, you know, that whole you're connecting to them and they're connecting with you and cutting your cutting your track, et cetera. Or you're touching, you know, any type of uh, vegetation around those access points and they become aware they're being hunted and killed. So 
Just, just yeah. kind of a thing there. All right. Definitely. So, we've, go ahead. We've, yeah, we've uh, certainly in areas too where we've, you know, put a, a new blind location, you know, we'll go behind that blind, you know, call it 50, 60, 80 yards and drop a couple trees so that you gain that spot of what I would call your scent cone where your scent's going to be blowing, you know, and the deer are not going to walk through a giant top of a tree to come right up behind you. They're going to go around and kind of out of your wind. And, you know, you kind of design that on your downwind side if you, if you can, um, in the certain scenario. And, and if the trees are there to, to cut down, which, which we have definitely utilized and done. Yeah, that's interesting. All right, let me, uh, we're going to end here on this probably last topic. And I want to know this year, you know, you've, you've done a lot of work and like you said, things are already starting to kick off for you. You know, what was the biggest lesson that you took away this season that was maybe different from the season before where you're kind of either fine tuning something with your setups or personally you're, you're approaching hunting a little bit different, something, so a takeaway that you had or something that you're going to do different this year going into a hunting season. Mm, that's a, that is a good question that I'm trying to think about the correct answer. Maybe not the correct answer, <laughs> but the best, the best answer. I mean, from a personal level, like I started shooting my bow June 1st and I shot two or three times a week, multiple arrows and just very consistent muscle memory, 20, 30, 40, every, every chance I shot, um, you know, and, and just being consistent so that when you get that opportunity, um, it's, it's second nature to you. It's like picking up a fork and eating, you know, something out of a plate or or something out of a bowl. You know, it's very, it's something you do every day. And that's something I started doing this year. And I think it's going to help me in the long run to, to just be a better hunter and, you know, more precise with my bow shooting and hopefully more successful, you know, when the animal's in front of me from a farm standpoint, I think the biggest thing that I've gotten much better at and tried to just be better at is when you do, when you're doing a task, no matter what it is, whether we're putting up a scrape tree or cleaning out a a box blind or planting a food plot, like being the most detail oriented you possibly can. I mean, like a fine tooth comb over every project that is done and just because for us, we're so spread out seven, uh, we're over 17 farms that we're managing, but you know, and they're, they're an hour North to South. So when they're, when we're there doing a project, I would rather spend an extra half hour and be much more detailed in doing it than to have to go back. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm going to, I'm going to give you my takeaway this year because we've had a chance to go. I've been on multiple client properties, obviously throughout the year, you know, I have X amount of properties that I visit and I get to learn from all these clients. One of the things that I I've realized is, and we talked about the concept of walls of cover recently, and you know, in that fact, we're designing this structure, this uh, immediate structure in a specific area. It could be you know a short interval of of cover, which could be you know 15 feet, or it could be 150 yards. And I realize that the precision in cutting, the height that you cut, thinking about the long term effects of those cutting techniques thinking about how transparent they need to be or dense they need to be, the depth of them, the height of them. I think what I've done is I've been a lot more precise in my cutting and I really try to take my time so things last long-term. 
So I don't have to go back in there and do work later on in a client property that, you know, is subpar or I'm not getting, you know, the, the structure at the height that I want because gravity impacted it. And I'm kind of thinking through all my cuts and just being really patient and strategic about my cutting process because I realize on other client properties that I've been to, you know, people are ripping and roaring and I'm, I'm just kind of taking my time because I know if I do take my time, I'm going to get a better result and I'm not going to go back and have to work on that particular area. Just, just with that one cutting technique of building a wall of cover and knowing that it's going to be kind of a staple there for 10 or 15 years because of the height, the density, the width, et cetera, all those things that play into it. And it serves multiple purposes. It can be nesting cover. It can be back cover for deer. It could be segregation. You know, there's, there's multiple purposes behind that, but it's thinking about cutting in a way where I have less maintenance down the road. And I, I think that's been my biggest takeaway this year, Perry. And, and, uh, you know, hopefully that helps people uh, when they're thinking about their hunting properties. Yeah. I think, I think our, both our takeaways are kind of, you know, that, that detail oriented, taking your time and just being as proficient as you possibly can while you're at that location. Yeah, I agree. I agree. All right. Anything else from you, anything you want to lay on us before you start killing? Good luck everyone. And, uh, kill them. <laughs> All right. Good. All right. Well, we'll catch back with you sometime during hunting season. I know you're busy, but if it's not during hunting season, we'll catch up with you at the end and, and see how things end up when you're in the, uh, the dough slam at the end of the year. Yeah. yeah we got, uh, we got plenty of, of, uh, Missouri DMAT permits to fill. So the numbers will be, will be large. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. All right, buddy. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah. Appreciate it. All right. See ya. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.